0: Related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. Bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins and not to judge my brother. For Thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
2: Amen. Hey, thanks so much, Father. And uh, we'll try and leave a bit more time for questions at the end then. And, uh, well, I wanted to follow on Father's Prayer here, just with a prayer we've always prayed to the Holy Spirit, uh, for the Virgin Mary to gather us with the Holy Spirit and obtain the Holy Spirit, for reading the Sacred Scripture here specifically. So if you would, just pray that same prayer with me, that we've been starting each one of these meetings. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. And so just, again, just reviewing real quickly what we've been doing. We've been moving now, having given the introduction, and having given a vast overview the first day that we met, the first Tuesday that we met for the Gospel of John, we given a vast overview in which to understand John and how John writes. We looked at the Gospel, how his ending of the Gospel before his epilogue makes very clear that we're to come to the same faith as Thomas, the same faith that professes, Je- that professes Jesus as Lord and God. And that's why he opened up his gospel with, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos with, with, was with God, and the Logos was God. And he ends it with Thomas' profession, Jesus, your God. And of course, he does the same thing in his letter, the letter that preceded the gospel, that, that in belief, Jesus has eternal life in himself, and the Father has given Jesus to us to receive eternal life. And therefore, he who believes in Jesus has eternal life. And of course, how does he open the letter? That we that, that which was invisible, that's implicit. That, that the life that was with the Father was made manifest. The life, the eternal life. In other words, God. Jesus is God, but he's not the Father. And then we said, okay, so from here, from that vast introduction, we're moving through. We moved through those seven days. We said, okay, so what we're going to do now is move through each Passover, because in John's Gospel, there are three Passovers during the public ministry of Jesus. And so, we showed, of course, that preceding the first Passover certainly turned water into wine, which is showing, ultimately, in giving the Spirit to all of us, He's going to elevate human nature into a participation in the divine nature. And in order to reach that point of Jesus giving that new wine, the Holy Spirit, we have to move through two Passovers, the first Passover, he walks in and he overthrows the tables. And so after that, he goes in. We went into, per John's first letter, from chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, we said, as we move to each Passover, look at let's look at Jesus coming by water. So we looked in chapters 2 to 5 of Jesus coming through water. And then the second Passover, which we took a look at the last time we were together, we went looking through chapter 6 and ended right before we got into chapter 10. But we said let's look at Jesus coming by blood because John's letter says he came by water, he came by blood, he comes by the Spirit, and that the Spirit, the water, and the blood; these three are one. Well, now we come to, now we come to the third Passover this evening, and the third Passover. So the first Passover we looked at him instituting baptism at that time. We look at him at the second Passover instituting by blood the Eucharist, and now as we come to this third Passover, we're going to look at him accomplishing giving the Spirit, and that He must die to give the Spirit. That's where, that's where we're headed. But you notice, of course, again, Jesus is simplifying all the Old Testament rituals, pretty much where we left off. We were looking at, okay, the first Passover, He overthrows the tables. The second Passover, He shows the sacrifice that replaces the tables. We read a little bit from Nusner. Uh, we should take a look at how Jesus is really simplifying and purifying the temple in Himself. Take a look at Malachi. We should read a little bit of this background of how they would have understood what Jesus was doing, and that's in the prophet Malachi. So if you would, flip to Malachi, and in chapter 1, we get a little bit of a preview. If you take a look at chapter 1, verse 11, it says, From the rising of the sun to its setting. So again, Malachi, Old Testament prophet, last listed in the minor prophets. Chapter 1, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So this pure sacrifice offered amongst all the nations, Jesus, in fulfilling all prophecy has come to fulfill this in Malachi, and he's going to fulfill it with the Eucharist. And when he entered into, at that first first Passover and over through the temple, tables that were collecting the money for the sacrifice, and he he stopped all sacrifice that day, we have to read this in light of chapter 3 of Malachi. Chapter 3 of Malachi. Behold, verse 1, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, the Lord whom you seek. So John the Baptist preparing the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus overthrowing the tables. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Jesus, who gives us the new covenant. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. So, all these prefigurements of the Old Testament, all these sacrifices that point to the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah, he brings them to completion and fulfillment. He is the true temple. That other temple only was a figure of what was to come. The true temple is not made by human hands, and Jesus is not made by human hands per the virginal conception, the virginal birth, which John relates to us as, and the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. When God took flesh, the true temple began to be built and established, made permanent in what we now see at the third Passover. the third is always a culmination. the third is always the ultimate. why do we say holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts because third means there's nothing holier. Jesus is the third temple, first temple Solomon, second temple, the rebuilt one after the Babylonian captivity. the true and ultimate temple, Jesus himself. And that's why he said, destroy this temple in three days or rebuild it. And we saw in chapter six, the sacrifice that replaces all sacrifices, all the goats, all the lambs, all the doves, all the pigeons, whatever it may be, all the cereal. all of it is replaced in Jesus Christ in refining the true priesthood in himself. We went through chapters seven to nine. And it's very interesting that, that Father Hezekiah brought this up. Do you notice when St. Paul in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians is interpreting the journey under Moses, he says, and all passed through the Red Sea and all were baptized into Moses under the cloud, representing the Holy Spirit, and through the sea, and all drank from the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. Well, remember what we just said last week. At this feast of, of booths, when they're all camping out remembering the journey, Why did they do the water ritual in the morning? To remember the rock that accompanied them from which they drank. Why did Jesus stand up and say, at the last day of that festival, let all who thirst come to me and drink? Because he's saying, I'm the rock. And that's why St. Paul has it right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And why in the midst of the light does he say, I am the light of the world at the very end? Because he's saying, "I'm the one who brings us all back into communion with God. I lead you into the holy of holies and the construction of the holy, holy, of holy of holies, as the pillar of fire is associated with that holy of holies." And so he confirms all of this where we left off with the healing of the more man born blind, showing that he is the one who enlightens and brings the light into darkness. He makes the blind to see, and those who think they see become blind. And not accepting him as the true Messiah. And where we, what we didn't get to finish going into is, look how he again, even after healing the man born blind, he discusses his divinity again so they understand his miracle correctly. Turn to chapter 10, and we're picking up where we left off, John chapter 10. He goes right back into proclaiming himself the temple once, once again, at the lighting of the menorah, the remembering of Hanukkah, the dedication of the second temple. And we have Jesus. It's very clear that this is happening at the dedication of the temple, John chapter 10, verse 22. It's the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem. And Jesus says something reminding them of who he is, that he is God. He's been moving through this whole aspect of of John chapter 5, in which he says, the father's at work until now and I am at work until now. And it says, they picked up stones to stone him to death because he was making himself equal to God. And in John chapter 8, he keeps explaining, I come from above, you come from below. They say, tell us plainly who you are. And he says, I've been telling you all along who I am. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And what does he say? Before Abraham was... I am. Once again, proclaiming his divinity, but he backs up his proclamation of divinity. What's he doing? in chapter 9? Heals the man born blind right in front of him. I am the light of the world. So now he reasserts his divinity a third time. Again, plain as day. And he says to them, he explains why no one can snatch people out of his hand. He says in verse 29, chapter 10, My father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And guess what happens the third time? They pick up stones again. 19th century German theologians, rationalists, might not have wanted to accept what Jesus meant here and might want to explain it away that he wasn't claiming to be God. But just take a look at how his first century Jewish audience heard him. Verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, Here's the third witness to, they heard him clearly who he claims to be. Third time, we stone you for no good work, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's the whole point of John's gospel, remember? At the very first day, we said we're going to read it in light of what John said his whole point in writing this was, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I opened up with verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Verse 14, the Logos became flesh. God became man. And this man is making very clear, I am God. And all the Jews, after all of his miracles, hear it very clear. And they're so ticked off that he's claiming to be God, they want to stone him to death. It's, it's as clear as clear can be. So Jesus holds them off because it's not yet his hour. His hour is about to come because in chapter 12, the Greeks are going to come. And they're going to come seeking him. And all of a sudden he's going to say, my hour has arrived. Because Jesus loves the Greeks more than anyone. I'm just saying that. It's a little joke because my last name's Greek. I want you to pay attention to Jesus' argument here. Of his hours not yet come. He says, "Um, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. In other words, hold off before you stone me to death. If he called them gods and the word of scripture cannot be set aside, why do you say of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? In other words, he's saying, The Father consecrated me when? During the celebration of the dedication of the temple, he's saying the Father consecrated me. I'm the temple. The transfiguration revealed it. Remember, John 1.14, the word became flesh and eskenun, pitched his tent, the tent of meeting, the tent of meeting that the apostles are about to be given the power to enter us into the tent of meeting when Jesus is going to wash their feet right before he institutes the Eucharist. That's chapter 13 of John. So why do you say of me, the one the Father consecrated and sent into the world, sent means preexistence. I was with the Father before I became man. Why do you say I'm blaspheming because I kind of said, I'm the Son of God? So now he backs it up and he says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Don't believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In other words, he slows them down from killing them, and then he punches them in the nose anyway, and says, even if you don't want to believe me, you better pay attention to the signs. Look at my signs, because they testify that what I'm saying is true. And so when I say the Father and I are one, that means I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The mystery of the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made which was made. In other words, I am your creator. And they understood what he was saying. For a third time, they want to stone him to death. And of course, it says, he escaped them from their hands. Now what's interesting is he says believe in my signs. And he's going to give them one more sign. And this represents the fullness. This is what chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus is all about. He's going to demonstrate what he's been saying in chapter 5. What did he say in chapter 5? The father has life in himself. And the father has given the son to have life in himself, and therefore the son raises and gives life to whom he chooses. In other words, Jesus is God, and now we see chapter 5 being brought up again in chapter 11, where he's going to say to us in chapter 11, verse 25, when Martha's saying, Lord, you know, my brother wouldn't have died if you came, and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, you got to remember, what life is he talking about in in here in John's gospel? In the first letter of John, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, Clearly, the life was made manifest to us, the eternal life. You must read this in light of what John was saying there, because that letter precedes this gospel. Jesus is clearly saying, I am eternal life. When he says, I am the life, he's referring to himself as the eternal life, that was with the Father. The Father is in Him, and He is in the Father, and that is why He is the resurrection and the life. And what's so cool is this is now going to be the seventh sign that Jesus gives right before the announcement of the third Passover. Because it's going to be at the third Passover, He's going to repeat for the third time that He has to become like the bronze serpent, And then we get the full explanation. He's got to die so that we can receive his eternal life. And so here we have, obviously, we can't go into detail if we're going to get into chapter, at least catch up to the beginning of chapter 15. And I feel certainly, I feel terrible. But the goal here is to bring us on a journey to get us in five lessons, at least through chapter 19 of John's gospel, to see the unity of John's gospel, through chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus is the true temple and is, and is recapitulating and purifying all that was only a prefigurement to be realized in himself in the Eucharistic worship that he institutes. And so, forgive me for moving through all the beauty of Jesus' wet. He raises Lazarus as this ultimate sign. This is the seventh sign. What's that mean? the seventh sign, because John will tell us at the very end of his gospel, take a look, stay here in chapter 11, keep one finger in chapter 11, and take a look at chapter 20, uh, verse 30, where we started this whole lesson. Remember the first day we read chapter 20, verse 30, and we said, this is the purpose of this book. And it says in verse 30, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, I, John, structured this book in such a way to make a theological point. I chose seven signs because seven represents God swearing himself to us. Seven represents fullness and sincerity. In other words, we see fullness and sincerity given to Jesus before he enters Jerusalem. He has revealed to all those priests and the high priests who he is by his signs. And when they reject him, they know full well his signs and the completion in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this is what's so ironic in chapter 11. After giving the sign that confirms a man who's been dead To the point where they're like, his body's going to stink. Jesus has been dead for, uh, what's the amount of days? Is it five days or a week? Let's go back to chapter 11, for how many days that he's been dead. Someone bring it up to me when we get back to it. Forgive me for for moving through it too quickly. In other words, he's begun to rot. So he's begun to rot according to, to death. So he's dead. He's been in the tomb. Jesus gives this great sign, and what is the response to those who don't want to give up the priesthood, which was only a temporary priesthood? The Levitical priesthood was never the purpose of the covenant with Moses. Remember, the Levitical priesthood only comes into existence because of the sin of the golden calf, in which the priesthood is stripped from all the tribes and only falls to the Levites, until the greater than Moses can come, and and re- institute the covenant that God always intended, reconstitute Israel. And so what is the response to Jesus' miracle? The response is this. In verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees, chapter 11 of John's gospel, the response to the seventh ultimate sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in front of everybody. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered The council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. In other words, they're well aware that he's doing great miracles, greater and as great as all the prophets combined. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, that would have been a good thing. (laughs) And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. I think I came in listening before I was able to hop on, and Father was talking about when Jesus entered Jerusalem, what he found instead was a bunch of evil, a bunch of people who were self-serving. The institution had become self-serving. I don't know if that sounds familiar, but the institution had become self-serving. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die For the people, that the whole nation should not perish. And John now says, he did not say this is of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the Exodus. To bring all the people scattered abroad back into God's home is the Exodus. The Exodus in Luke's gospel of the transfiguration, that Moses and Elijah appeared, and Luke says, and discussed with Jesus the exodus he was about to perform in Jerusalem, becoming the true Passover lamb. And so what's so interesting is right after Caiaphas says this, we come to verse 55, the theme for tonight. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. In other words, Jesus now is going to enter into culminating all of the Passovers, these three years, in his laying down his life for his beloved. And so we pick up in chapter 12 of the uh, Gospel of John, and we find him where? We find him in Bethany. We find him gathered right before he goes into Jerusalem to meet his death. We find him, and it says, six days before the Passover— Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, and and St. Thomas Aquinas' commentary on John has something very interesting to say here. He reads it very spiritually. He says, Bethany means house Beth of obedience, that Jesus has come to give his obedience to the Father. He knows he's about to lay down his life, but he knows he's also about to take it up again. So he's sitting with the very person he resurrected, right before he goes to lay down his life as the Lamb of God. And Aquinas says the reason he points to the six days is he's trying to make clear that this is going to happen on the Friday. So six days from this time is Friday when Jesus is going to perform the Passover while all the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover Friday night to be celebrated that's the very moment Jesus, like a lamb spread out and opened in his crucifixion, is going to die at the very moment all the lambs are being slaughtered. And so, in chapter 12, he makes his way into the entry into Jerusalem, which obviously we'll be celebrating on Palm Sunday. It's, it's nearing. Um, but what, what I wanted to focus on is this passage, the passage in verse 20 of chapter 12, the one I was just joking about. It says, now among those who went up to worship for the Passover, for the feast, were some Greeks. This just really means representing the Gentile nations. So these came to Philip. Notice Philip has a Greek name after Philip of Macedon. So they go to the guy named Philip. The Greeks go to the guy named Philip. He must be like us. So Philip clearly speaks Greek, and they say they want to speak with Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, and Andrew's a Greek name as well. Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. This is what I was joking about. The Greeks come and say, we want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says, my hour has come. What to what is Jesus referring here? And actually to what he's referring is his crucifixion, because his crucifixion is what is referred to in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says the Messiah is going to send up an ensign, a symbol that'll gather all the nations. Uh, and so right before it says that, let's look in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. So flip, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. You'll recall, Jesus in John's gospel is the Messiah. And chapter 11 of Isaiah is that the stump, that dead family tree, that from the roots, the underground family of Jesse that has survived since the Babylonian captivity, from the roots, a branch shall sprout. And the root word for branch deals with Nazareth. That's why they say the Messiah shall be a Nazarene, because Nazareth in the Hebrew is branch. And that's where there's this association between Jesus being a Nazarene and Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of being a branch. But the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. So the question is this. Why is the Spirit of the Lord upon the Messiah in chapter 11, verse 1? The Spirit of the Lord, verse 2, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. In other words, the Messiah is the one who has the Spirit because the Messiah is the one who must give the spirit to the rest of the nation. And what is Jesus coming to do? What does Jesus specifically speak about as he institutes himself as the Passover lamb? Chapters 14 through 16 are all about, I must go so that I can give the spirit because I'm the Messiah, but no one really understands how the Messiah is going to give the spirit. But in verse in verse 10, for the coming of this Messianic kingdom that Isaiah 11 is all about, in verse 10, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign to the peoples. So he'll really stand out. Him shall the nations seek. So what does that mean? The Greeks now have come to Jerusalem. They say, we seek to speak with Jesus. It's saying the prophecy of Isaiah 11 is now at hand. Jesus, the nations are now asking for you. And that's why Jesus says, my hour has come. This messianic kingdom of Isaiah 11 is about to be unleashed. But the answer to how it's unleashed is through his death. And so it says in verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant which is left of his people. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, and from Hamath, from the islands of the sea, he will raise an ensign for the nations. In other words, this means when it says the Lord is going to do a recovery the second time, a second exodus, even to outdo Moses' exodus. And that's why Moses and Elijah appear at the transfiguration and speak of the exodus that's to come, is referring again to Isaiah 11 right here. And so it goes on, and it talks about raising this sign to gather the nations. And what does Jesus now say in John chapter 12? So let's go back to that. The Greeks come, John chapter 12, he says, the hour is now here, and he immediately speaks about the sign that he spoke about in John chapter three, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the son of man be lifted up that all who believe in him may have life. But again, he said the same in chapter eight, that interval from the Passover from chapter six to chapters 10, when we're discussing the second Passover, he again brings up and says in chapter 8, verse 28, flip to that, John chapter 8, verse 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, ego me." Yes, you can translate it, I am he, but he's letting it be known he is God who gives eternal life because he is the Messiah giving the Spirit. And now we come at the third Passover, where Jesus is going to give the sign. At the third time, Jesus now says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, you must follow me. I'm going to show you how to enter into surrendering your will so completely to God that you conquer death. It's by following me in my death and in faithfulness to me. And therefore, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, he who seeks to find himself will be lost. But he who loses himself for my sake shall be found. In other words, Entering into giving your will as a perfect gift to the Father through Jesus, with Jesus, and in Jesus is how we must learn to live and surrender our will to the divine will so the divine will can reign in us. And then he moves into explaining what he's been saying all along about the Son of Man being lifted up. And he says, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die, in other words, by his crucifixion. He's fulfilling what he originally said in John chapter 3. He's talking about John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world, He sent His only Son, that those who may believe in Him may not perish but may have eternal life. Why? They will see the crucifixion and believing God became man. They will again be able to believe God loves you, me. That God is love, and and we don't like all the old past religions. We don't just sacrifice to God. God loves us so much, he sacrifices to us. That's radically different in Christianity. I'm drawing on Joseph Ratzinger's introduction to Christianity. He originally wrote in the 1960s and then does uh, re-editions in the early 2000s, where you can find this aspect of the beauty of God's humble love, how God seeks us out and God dies for us. He doesn't ask us to kill ourselves for him. God lays down his life for us. And by this we know love, that man has no greater love than to lay down his life for his beloved. And so what's interesting is, at the same time that Jesus speaks now clearly about dying, that he can pour out his spirit on all of us, he says in verse 27 up above, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The third time God's voice is heard. First time, the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son. Second, son, second time, at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Third time, when Jesus makes very clear he's about to be crucified, the Father testifies to Jesus' pre-existence. And in essence, is already answering what Jesus will say in chapter 17, when Jesus will say, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began, in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. So, what we're looking at now is Jesus came to die. Why? To give us his spirit. His glory comes when he enters into the full surrender of his humanity. You cannot surrender your humanity to the Father any more than surrendering it to the point of death. There's nothing more to give. You're dead. All that you had to give, you gave, which means There is no longer a separation between the human will and the divine will. But now the divine will, because it reigns in Jesus who is God, and he brought his humanity now to fully surrender to the Father's will, that means now that he has died, all the glory hidden in his human soul can pass in his resurrection from his human soul into his flesh— therefore glorified again with the glory that he had before the world was created, in which now even his flesh is admitted. Human flesh is once again admitted to the Holy of Holies, to eternal life, to sharing in God in heaven. And now through Jesus, all humans, because his flesh is in heaven, all humans through the flesh of Jesus can become partakers of the divine nature. So, Jesus wants to bring himself into death, and so he gathers the apostles, chapter 13, for the Last Supper, and he washes them. Why? Because he's preparing them to be cleansed to receive the Holy Spirit. He's bringing about the final completion of their human wills to be ready to receive the Spirit he wants to pour out after his resurrection. When I'll breathe on them, and on the day of the resurrection, say, receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I already washed you. I washed you the night I instituted my body and blood. So that now, through me, you can receive the Spirit. You've been washed. And what's so interesting, though, is this. Jesus is at the Last Supper, chapter 13, when he's gathered them for the Last Supper, it's not recorded here about his instituting his body and blood, that, he, that the institution narrative in the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus took bread and said, this is my body. He took wine and said, this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. He came by water. He came by blood. came by the spirit. And the spirit and the blood and the water, these three are one. That institution narrative is not in John because its meaning has already been explained in chapter six. There was a question, I think, the last time we were together, someone said, what about the Jews who won't believe because they're disgusted with the idea of eating flesh and drinking blood? Remember, it doesn't look like flesh. It doesn't look, it just looks like bread and wine. So according to the letter of the law, it's just bread and wine according to the letter of the law. But according to the mystery of faith, the objective reality, the res at sacramentum, the reality and the sign. Transubstantiation means what looks like bread and what looks like wine is the risen flesh and blood of God in heaven. And you're not consuming merely a human, you're consuming God who cannot be consumed. But God who communicates his divinity into your soul and so swallows you, according to St. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, that we're swallowed in divinity. In receiving the Eucharist, we're being swallowed in divinity, and Jesus is inflaming us and burning away our venial sin, that we become more fully partakers in the divine nature. And so, it's interesting, in, in chapter 13, Jesus washes them. Verse 5, chapter 13, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, him, oh Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, What I'm doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. This is love. It might be disordered in the way Peter acts, but this is love. Jesus, Peter loves Jesus, and he's saying, I will not let God... I will not let the person I just declared to be the son of God, the one who is the true king of Israel, you will not wash my feet. In other words, he's exalting Jesus. That's why Jesus isn't mad at him. He sees the love. I wish I had this love that Peter has. Lord, I will not let you be humiliated ever. Jesus says, you don't understand now what I'm doing, Peter, but you will. Peter, give in. I know you love me. Peter, give in or you will have no part in me. And Peter's response said, watch me all over, watch me all over. I don't want to ever not have a part in you, Jesus. What's happening here? I think to some degree, we need to go back to John 1, 14. Why is he washing them? He's washing them in relationship to the fact that Jesus is the true temple. But this temple of his body, the race of Adam, must die. So that Through his death and resurrection, he finishes the third temple. That can never be destroyed because glory has now been communicated to it through his death and resurrection. And since they're about to enter the temple, not just to have been baptized to be ready to receive it, but they're about to enter the Holy of Holies, Jewish law says before you enter the holy place, You have to wash your hands, your body, and your feet. Take a look how Jesus is doing what Moses does. Jesus is giving them a share in himself, the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's replacing those Levites who were a placeholder. The true king has arrived, and that king is a high priest because he's the natural son of God. He is restoring the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he has gathered the new tribes, the 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes. Look at Moses in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 5. This is the rites of ordination before Aaron and his sons can serve in the tent temple. Before they're allowed to enter the tent temple, the tabernacle Moses sets up in the desert, it says, verse 5, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Who is Jesus? The new Moses. What is Jesus going to accomplish? The new Exodus. Who does John say he is from the very beginning of his gospel? Chapter 1, verse 14. He's the true temple. Who does Jesus say he is in chapter 2 when he throws over the tables at the first Passover? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And John says he was speaking of his body. Jesus is about to give entrance through his body and blood, as Hebrews chapter 10 says, through the new veil that he established, which is his body. This is the Eucharist. All of this is Eucharistic. Chapter 12, when I'm raised up, I will draw all people to myself. Yeah, because when you're washed with the baptismal waters, you're washed to receive the Eucharist. And being baptized, you're joined to what's happening on the altar through the sacramental character you received in baptism. You are joined to what's happening on the altar. And so Jesus, in his representation of his death. We take bread, which becomes his body, truly his body. We take wine, which becomes truly his blood. We show them separated. We're showing his death. And you are being drawn into his self-offering, which sanctifies you to be able to be offered because of your baptism through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And so he is drawing all men to himself and pouring out the Spirit through that one-time sacrifice. So this brings us back into John chapter 13. So in John chapter 13, we see that we can see another meaning, too, as to why he washes them, because he says, Peter, you don't understand now, and clearly we know now. He's going to become that lamb, and the apostles are going to be the foundation of that new city. Do you remember when I was talking about the days of creation in John's gospel? I said, notice on day three, in Genesis, it's land is established, because you can't build on water. (laughs) A wise man builds his house on rock. So on day three in the new creation, he names Peter Rock. And then I said, on day four, notice he describes himself after being called the Lamb of God as the place where the angels of God descend and ascend upon the Son of Man. And then I took you into the book of Revelation. And I said, notice at a wedding feast, you have a lamb who is declared to be the temple standing in the center of the city. And who is the foundation? I think it was verse 14 It says the foundation of the city that comes down from heaven is the 12 apostles. So who makes possible for the lamb to appear? The apostolic succession, which makes the bread become the body of Jesus, the wine become the blood of Jesus, and the apostolic successors now have the authority to say to us when they do that, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. In other words, Jesus has regathered us all into the household of God, which is the Holy Spirit, who builds the true temple. In the great mystery of the perichoresis, the inner circumcision, circumcession, excuse me, inner circumcession. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then he now enters into He's going to enter into death to give his spirit, this is chapter 14, so that you may have the indwelling of the Spirit in you. And through the indwelling of the Spirit, the Father and the Son will dwell within us, and we will enter into that inner Trinitarian mystery of indwelling in God by grace in the beatific vision. And so you see this movement of of the washing, to prepare us to what? To enter the mystery of the Trinity. Because before you enter a temple, you must wash. And these are going to be the foundation of that new temple, which is the Lamb. When we eat his flesh and drink of his blood, we pass through him to where he is. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's God. We're in God, and God's in us without loss to our humanity. This is Holy Communion, which he's establishing in chapter 13 and explains more fully in chapter 14. Now I'd love to go into this all the more. Let me say something real quick before I head into chapter 14. This act of washing their feet is a preparation for them to grasp his death. Peter's like, I won't let you humiliate yourself by washing my feet because that's the job of a servant to wash the feet. I won't let you do this. What is Jesus preparing Peter for? Peter, if you think it's humiliating for me to wash your feet, you're about to see something way more humiliating. I'm about to be tortured and stripped naked and hang naked on a cross. That's way more humiliating, Peter. This is almost like a preparation. So the jolt of the cross, they begin to grasp that Jesus has come as the suffering servant. And that's why Jesus has to constantly explain to them in chapter 14, I will return to you. I go away and you cannot follow. And Peter understood this language in chapter 13. Take a look. Chapter 13, John's gospel. John chapter 13, verse 36. Peter said, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow afterward. Peter said, I'm Lord. Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. In other words, Peter knows Jesus is talking about dying now. He saw Jesus just humiliate himself in front of all the 12, and he realizes, oh, please don't tell me you're really going to go through with this dying thing. I mean, Peter's heart is breaking. He loves Jesus. I mean, his heart's breaking. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Chapter 14, verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He must die. That's preparing the place so that his flesh can receive the glory. And now, through the renewed humanity of Jesus, all human flesh can live in God. That's the house. That's the mystical body of Christ, the true temple, not made by human hands. And then he says, verse 3, he's now explaining the institution of the Eucharist. It's full meaning, which isn't grasped until after his resurrection and ascension. It's full meaning. It's right here, though. Its meaning is here. This is what they don't understand why he was washing them. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. That's the Eucharist. I will be in heaven, but I don't go away. I don't leave you orphans. I will come back to you in my body and blood. I will join you to myself, and you will be gathered with the Lamb on Mount Zion. You will be gathered in the mystery of the sacrament In the reality of my being at the right hand of the Father, I am with you until the end of the age. This is what John chapter 14 is all about. And this is why I want to end here as we've reached the nine o'clock hour to listen to what he's saying here in chapter 15. I'm sorry, chapter 14. Chapter 14, I'm just going to read through verse 20. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete, another counselor, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's why I just washed you. I'm going to die and prepare a place so that you can receive the Spirit who brings you to be with me where I am. Verse 18, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you yet in a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Woo! There's so much more to go, but let's pause for questions.
1: Uh, you're certainly giving us a T-bone steak here in the middle of Lent. We really appreciate it. So, uh, thank you, Doctor. on behalf of everybody participating here. All right, guys, Q and A, uh, and we have here coming in a Doctor from Gregorio, uh, and I'm going to kind of halfway interpret it for you. John chapter 13, verse 18. After the washing of the feet uh jesus talking about the person who's going to dip his hand in the bowl with him yeah he talks about my bread and then satan enters into judas is there a eucharistic significance to all of this and then i'm going to add to this one doctor just to make your job more difficult what do you think did judas receive the eucharist
2: uh well i i follow more romano guardini here so if you haven't read romano guardini's the lord I'd highly encourage the reading of Romano Guardini's The Lord and very clearly know that the bread that's dipped there is kind of like an hors d'oeuvre kind of significance that's occurring here. Um, so it's definitely not the Eucharist, but what is definitely of significance is the tie between John chapter six, in which we know for the first time Judas uh, is going to betray Jesus it was over the teaching of the Eucharist in John chapter 6 that Judas had set his heart at that moment of he knows better than Jesus. And so we see it at the Last Supper right before Jesus institutes it. That's when Judas, after dipping the bread, Jesus turns and says, do what you must do. In other words, we all know what you're up to. And Judas leaves that uh, Judas did not receive the uh, body and blood of Christ as instituted at the Last Supper. Thank you, Doctor. Um,
1: uh, We have another question coming in from Lila, Lilia, Lilia maybe. Uh, John chapter 14, uh, verse 28. Uh, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Um, And this is a rather confusing verse that the Jehovah's Witnesses like to use. Uh, against us um, for believing that Jesus is divine and equal to the Father. So how are we to understand this uh, statement of Christ?
2: Well, that's that's a great question, and I'm glad we were able, were able to address that. I apologize, I wasn't able to get into that one. So you notice Jesus, when he's speaking, is he in his divine nature, which is invisible, or is he speaking because he's in his human nature, and clearly, he's able to speak and say these things because he's in his human nature. So, this is where actually St. Augustine, in his De Trinitate, book one, he goes into this rule of how to understand these statements where Jesus clearly claims to be God, but other times he clearly says that the Father's greater than I. And so, he says we need to follow the rule of Philippians, chapter two, verses five through seven and that is uh, the rule of the servant. In other words, Jesus is equal to the Father according to his nature as God, but according to his condition as man, which is a created nature, the human nature, he is necessarily as man less than the Father. And so we say, we read in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, uh, having the mind of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not um, cling to equality with God, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So he's speaking here as the suffering servant laying down his life. The Father is greater than I. And so, as the last Adam bringing us all back into the Father, Jesus can say, The Father is greater than I.
1: Yeah, no, no, you're, you're fine. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was thinking about there's a similar passage that's a little uh, it's, uh, difficult maybe to understand is regarding Jesus growing in wisdom. Can we understand that in the same way?
2: Yeah. So, in other words, yes, in his his human nature, that we know he has developmental knowledge, experiential knowledge. And so, through this experiential knowledge, there is something new in his development as a human. Um, But he always has, because he's God, he has the divine knowledge, which in his human nature is the beatific vision. He has the beatific vision even before he dies. His soul possesses the glory in it, because it's the divine nature itself, the very being of the Logos, that is the subject by which his human, his divine nature, that very divine existence of the Logos in relationship to the Father, as the Logos possesses it in relation to the Father, that existence, that divine existence, he communicates and takes to himself a spiritual human soul, and therefore... Um, In that spiritual soul united with flesh, Jesus is a divine person in human nature. So he has three forms of knowledge in his human nature, the beatific vision, the infused knowledge that that belongs to prophets, and lastly, acquired knowledge, which all of us as humans necessarily experience in our own development and the development of human concepts.
1: Doctor, you might want to wait for this for next week. Feel free if you do regarding John chapter 12, verse 27. Uh, the question comes, Jesus said, Father, glorify your name, uh, but then in the agony of the garden, there seems to be a contradiction in, in which Jesus seems to be far from his father, and there's a, a, a distance, and certainly a, a appearing not to be a glorification, but this beginning of, well, what is it? what ends up being the passion and crucifixion?
2: No, I think it's, it's a good time right now just to say something here, and that would be Jesus certainly makes very clear I'm not I don't I'm not going to run I'm not going to run from this. But again, this acquired knowledge that we're discussing, Jesus has a real human nature. That means all the desires that belong to human nature at a bodily level, emotional level, and intellectual level belong to Jesus. And necessarily, the human body is disturbed by threat to terrible suffering and being ripped apart. And so God has placed in us that natural desire for self-protection. Jesus, in experiencing these human desires, though, takes them all and always brings them into a surrender to the will of the Father. And so Jesus really does experience the threat of horrible suffering and death. His body naturally revolts, and he says, Father, take this cup from me. In other words, he's experiencing suffering because his body's telling him, this is going to be bad, this is going to be bad, this is going to be bad. So, of course, he has extreme suffering uh, emotionally associated with this natural desire in us to preserve ourselves from being ripped apart slowly and painfully. But Jesus, loving God, automatically brings that desire into, through his humanity, into a surrender to the divinity, And so, this is this aspect of where Jesus is going through all human experiences per the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3 and chapter 4, tempted like us in all things except sin. And so, I do think we need to see the very fact that Jesus marches down from Galilee to Jerusalem, he intends to die. I lay my life down freely. No one takes it from me. I think the washing of the feet is the first sign that this night I'm about to be taken and I'm walking towards it because I'm washing your feet, letting you know I'm going to die so that what I'm doing will make sense later. So it's actually a sign that I lay my di- life down freely just by washing their feet. Oh, man, I'm coming
1: over to you. Go ahead. Hello, doctor. Uh, I got a question about John 6. In John 6, 48 to 59, kind of uh, like the narrative is um, framed between uh mentioning the uh, their the Jewish ancestors died in the desert but also it says seven times he mentions the word eat but he mentions the word drink four times is that does that have anything to do with the four cups they they usually drink during wow. the last supper I mean the the Passover
2: I haven't caught the word drink but I think that's certainly a, an insight and certainly, uh, may well be a a it may well intentionally be there by John. I haven't counted it, but I think that would be a beautiful insight of the four cups um, that are associated with the Passover celebration of the Passover. So um, I'll have to go back and 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 circle and take a look. But I think that's a really, really great insight that uh, uh, all I was going to say is, wow, that's really great.
1: And Ahmed, I think that's, uh, we're going to finish with you on that because uh, that I would just encourage everybody, you know, a lot of what Dr. Zakonikis is talking about in this series, you're not going to remember. And I'm screaming at you in pregame shows. You're not going to remember anything I said. But uh, he's just blasting out a ton of of information and he's sharing with you. But um, the most important thing is forming a habit of biblical reading, a good habit of reading scripture. And that's a good habit of reading according to the mind of the church with the senses of scripture. Always reading with a master who can guide you. That's with the church fathers, the saints, okay? Great teachers like Dr. Zaconikis and others and uh, and and so forth. So always form this habit. And then when you don't have Dr. Zaconikis to turn to, when you have a question, nevertheless, those principles of good exegesis will be deeply seated in you you'll be able to interpret the scriptures uh, with confidence and and really find some treasures and jewels in there.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635